Hello, hello. Okay, I can hear you now. Yeah, yeah, I had it on mute because I was eating a bag of chips. <laughs> you hear that? I've enjoyed those in your office plenty of times, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we went to Microsoft a few times and the uh, hot chocolate isn't quite the same. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and the dispensers, like the... The powder, the powdered milk or whatever needs to be changed. <laughs> ah, so we were, in, we've gotten tea a couple of times. Mm -hmm. They need a chai machine, Neil. Oh God, they just need a chai walla, man. Why a machine? <laughs> <laughs> just bring a nice lady from Mumbai. Oh, you've got it. You've got it. Oh. Yeah. I know Heather'd be up for that too. Her favorite cuisine, I think she said was Indian. Mm. It's a, it's a good favorite to have. Um, do you want me to go first with some of the uh, VC Corner stuff? Yeah, please. We have a bunch of kind of interesting stats that uh, Tanner gathered for us this last time. Thank you, Tanner uh, just Fuchs. About, <laughs> just about uh, uh, things going on in the marketplace. Um, and so I thought we'd take go through those. So let me pull that back up. Um, and some of this is just meant to, for us to react to it, right? Yeah. 91% um, of startups globally felt their business impacted by the crisis. That's not surprising to me. Mm -mm. Um, I, I wonder if the other nine didn't respond. <laughs> no comment, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, most um, companies have... Um you know, rightly, um, stopped giving forward guidance. So maybe many didn't give backward guidance. Either. It's certainly a strange thing, yeah. 18% um, of startups made a pivot to address a new market, uh, which is interesting. And I've seen plenty of people trying to apply their diagnostic or their therapeutic to COVID. Yeah, and this is, uh, I wonder, you know, obviously it's a... a, a possibly a good idea but it seems a little bit like the dot-com craze where you had you know zapata which was a fish meal company become zapata.com and the stock soared <laughs> <laughs> well so you know when so like we're we're actually just finished docs to invest in hdt today right mm -hmm. um steve reed's company mm -hmm. and so like when he's working on a vaccine and he still needs to go through all of the the trials from you know starts in mice goes to primates and he's been working on the underlying technology. That makes sense to me. Um, plus, you know, he used to have a contract for rapid development deployment of a vaccine in the event of a pandemic from the U.S. Army. That one makes sense to me. But a lot of what I'm seeing just doesn't. Uh, and an example of what you see that doesn't make sense is? Um, I've seen some tech plays. I don't pay much attention. It doesn't make sense. I don't keep reading. I just mm -hmm. hit delete. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, I've seen some diagnostics try and switch. Um, so I saw a diagnostic that was being used for something else to just go after COVID. And I'm not sure they can scale up soon enough because they're still a startup. Right, right, right. Uh, so that kind of stuff doesn't make as much sense to me. And in what, um, in what context does it make sense, Neil? If you've got that background already, if you've got that platform already that's ready to go, mm -hmm. right? If this is just a question of, adding another six or nine months worth of research to add another leg to what you're already going after, I think it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. If you're convinced you can dominate the market and do it in short order, I think it makes sense. Mm -hmm. If you if you can't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, 
You know, I, actually, I, I asked the, the guys from Juno to, to look at, to see whether they could use a diagnostic. And, you know, um, they spent a few hours talking about it because I asked them to. And maybe that's the sway you have as a board member. But ultimately, they decided not to do it, which was great. Yeah. I, I appreciate that they were still focused on the other market. Uh-huh. Um, 13% are considering a pivot in the next six months. <laughs> I think the number's going to grow. Yeah. <laughs> well, keep your options open is the... Is the... <laughs> 34% of Series B startups laid off employees. So these are real companies with real revenue. And they're laying people off to get leaner through the the coming I don't obviously we're not the the bottom yet. Well, we're so. clearly not at the bottom in terms of the real economy, right? So at least one third of these startups are really thinking about it. Well, maybe. Uh forty eight percent of the startups have added at least some new employees since the beginning of March, and seventy eight plan seventy eight percent plan to hire by year end. Uh, that makes sense to me. I mean, this is the best time to build a business, right? Like when it, everything's going down. Um, I expect there, you know, coincidentally, and I think we might have said this on an episode or just talked about it. I expect there to be a lot of restaurants that go bankrupt and then there to be a, a quite the renaissance in restaurants um, five or seven years from now. I would agree with that. Yeah, I think uh, we're going to see that play out in a lot of ways, but uh, I think especially you can see it in, in restaurants happening, yeah. Um, maybe, maybe we'll see. I, I, I expect to see the quality go up significantly in the next round for whatever reason. The quality, you're speaking generally. Of, of restaurants across the board. Let's say there's, I don't know how many restaurants there are in Seattle, but let's call it 2,000, um, just in the city of Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, Let's say half of them go bankrupt. I expect the ha you know the thousand that take their place. I expect six or seven hundred to be of you know much higher quality than they ever were before. I don't expect to see as many mom and pop cheap pizza shops kind of options come up again. Hmm. I could be wrong, but I hope I'm not. <laughs> well, pizza is enjoying a renaissance. I mean, it is already seemingly ubiquitous. But most of the new pizza places are putting a new twist onto old pizza. Um, Nancy Silverton, a famous restaurateur here in Los Angeles, has a place called Triple Beam. And it's fascinating to see that she's doing things that people didn't really consider pizza, you know, squash blossoms and other, you know. Uh, Did we go to her, one of her restaurants once before, you and I? Uh, we may have. Uh, didn't we go to, yeah, where we saw... Um, Darius. Darius. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. We should have him on, on an episode soon. He's How LA. is he? He's doing well. Yeah? Yeah. Let's have Darius Campbell, our triple platinum singer friend, on an episode. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, she has Pizzeria Moza, which, uh, and we went That's where we Moza. went. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We went there. Yeah, that's right. Um, I saw, actually, uh, this restaurant called Pizza Gar. G H A R, and they did like Indo Chinese dumplings and stuff as well, ah. and they did like the the mix of the paneer tikka masala pizza. Um, Heather, I don't recommend that one specifically, uh, <laughs> but the restaurant I do. Uh -huh. The restaurant, my my wife was quite happy with just the dumplings mm -hmm. in Redmond. Uh, anyway, moving on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are more options than just Chicago style or New York style. That's the <laughs> takeaway here, right? 
47% of entrepreneurs see less VC interest av um, available or reactiveness, which is interesting because we're looking at more things now. <laughs> Are you looking at more things because there is a search be because some funding has dried up and uh, entrepreneurs or those with the ideas are coming more to you, Neil? I don't know if it's that or if we're kind of on the rise in an underfunded space. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, we're the only institutional VC in the country focused specifically on seed investing in med tech. Uh, there's lots of people who do it. There's lots of people who overlap, uh, but there's nobody else doing that. So I, I think maybe the word's getting out about um, our style of pizza. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> there's another option. Um, Let's see. 39% of companies were, will be full remote before the, were full remote before the crisis. This is very funny. I got lots of questions about being a remote fund. And I was always kind of thinking like, don't I want to work with the best people no matter where they live? They're not willing to necessarily move to me. Um, I don't think we'll get that question anymore as a fund. Mm -hmm. um, 39, yeah, I don't know. You could work remote too, other than meeting your clients, right? It's not. Yeah, you do. Um... I think there's still uh, room to bring people together um, to hash out, especially with difficult situations or when you really need to um, get the buy-in from your team. Um, but I think certainly uh, the vast majority of work can be done remotely, especially yeah, with, yeah, intellectual. But, you know, you can make a dozen calls in a day. So there are times where Eric, Ian, and I will be on a phone call just I probably we don't probably get to a dozen, um, but eight times is not crazy at all. It happens regularly. Like we never hesitate to call somebody else or add somebody else to the call. Mm -hmm. Do you find anything that uh, you're missing on the calls that you could accomplish more? Yeah, I wish I could throw a Nerf ball more often at Ian if we were in person. <laughs> no, I actually tell him, cue the Nerf ball. If you were here right now, I don't love your answer. I'm going to throw a Nerf ball at you. Is that um, the, so what... Uh, brings about the nerf ball throw is I, when I don't love that we haven't thought through something as well as I want us to have uh -huh. I think like you've got to put a lot of neurons into a lot of things and I think so is never good enough mm -hmm. right like mm -hmm. I know so I went and looked at it <laughs> that's a good answer for me um, and I asked that specific question did, did you did you read all of that in entirety did, did we cover all of that? Hey, I think so. Good. Let's let's go check right now. Let's let's not think about this anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, forty-seven percent of companies plan to increase remote working. Good. You know, I actually wonder, Chris. Do you think you'll do a day a week away from the office when the probably craze at least a day? Yeah. Mariganka said she could see herself doing two days a week. Yeah. My wife. Away. I think we'll probably see that a little bit more. I think we'll see um, companies, yeah. I, I don't expect uh, full work from home, but uh, two days a week, you know, 40% of the time or so seems like a reasonable balance. He, he shared like, uh, we'll, we'll just do one prediction for the predictions game here. Um, when will unemployment's unemployment levels hit the same levels as they were prior to the pandemic, meaning they were Ooh. less before the pandemic, right? Ooh, back to 3% or so. I, was that the real number? 
Uh, well, wasn't it closer to eight? What's real, right? <laughs> but it, it, whatever Trump says it is tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the U3 got to, I think, 3.34, um, the lowest post-World War II rate of unemployment. But those are continuing claims. And if you look at the U6, which is more of the broadest measure, the total population um, that's um, of civilians employed to non-employed, it was really still, um, we had a lot of people just not in the workforce um, of working age. So it depends. If, if it's the U3, it still will probably be a very, very long time before we see a number uh, yeah, did you say over a decade? Over under over, a decade. Over a decade. I think over a decade. Mm -hmm. um, maybe if at all. Um, I think there may be yet another recategorization that includes, um, I'm going to give credit to Andrew Yang from here on out for uh, universal basic income, even though he's clearly not the father of it. He's not the father of it. He was probably the most notable exponent. And it seems like it's arriving in fits and starts, right? Yep. We might have um, to have David Graeber on. He's the one who wrote the book Bullshit Jobs. Let's see if we can get him. Yeah. Heather, Heather that's a, a gig for you. Uh, get us David Graeber yeah. on the podcast. Bullshit Jobs, you know. I, did I, we talk about his thesis? No. Just that uh, because of automation and the expansion of technology, we have more leisure time, of course, and we've seen it, you know, throughout the working world. If you look at the development of labor, um, Again, the work week shorter and shorter, and you have. I guess I I have heard this of this thesis. Yeah, yes. but he's yeah. His argument is that uh, because we have a need or a compulsion to feel valued and to have some sort of meaningful work, yes. we invent jobs that really aren't uh, don't accrue any benefit to. Well, this is a little of Ian's thesis, actually, in a good way. Like mm -hmm. we we must be working, especially in this country. It's part of our, like our ethos. It, work hard. It really is in America very hard, right? Like so, you see in throughout the eurozone and most notably France, where they're arguing for a thirty-two hour work week or twenty-eight hours or something like that. You know, um, they seem to have gotten it, <laughs> at least, are more open to the idea than we are. Well, they take definitely take six weeks vacation. It seems like right, right, total a year, right, right. But it, but you know, I, I asked my wife about this really skeptically. Mm -hmm. Are your France counterparts just as productive? And she said sometimes more productive. So they're at least equal and sometimes more. And I was like, well, there's my argument for six weeks. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's good. Yeah, well, I've, you know, there's that old argument that work will expand to fill the time you allot to it. Um, it's like a gas or a liquid just fills the container you give it. Um, I guess if you're more narrowly focused, you'll get more done in that uh, narrow time, narrow space. Um, two current events that we might comment on, and then we can move on to your update for the week. Um, isn't Kamala Harris from California? I don't pay that much attention to. Kamala Harris is from Jamaica. She's uh, from Jamaica. Yeah. Is she not? She's from Mother India. <clears throat> I wondered if she was Indian um, with a name like Kamala. But where, where does she reside? California? California. Oh, absolutely. She's a U.S. Is she likely to be the. Front writer for Biden as VP, does that help him? I think so. I, I think um, she is the most palatable um, choice from the optic side for progressives, I think. You know, she's, a, she's female. She's of color. Um, yeah. She rhetorically speaks the right language. Um, 
Yeah, I think she's a fit. There is a um, in her past, you know, she uh, might have a liability in that uh, some of her prosecution on crimes and misdemeanors uh, came down uh, to at least the African-American community and many others who are reformers as severe and on more on the side of law enforcement, though that might create balance. You never know how these things will play out, right? (laughs) Right? People might say, well, right. (laughs) She'll balance Um, Joe out. We got to get Jacques. What what are you doing? You got to get Jacques on our episode. Oh, he's right now fighting the NOPD because they've been, you know, tear gassing peaceful protesters. New Orleans Police Department? Yeah, the New Orleans Police Department. Um, Yeah, he's, uh, my cousin Jacques, of course, is a fighter. And uh, he's taking it to him he's you know they've been um guilty of a lot of abuses that are caught on camera uh as we've seen around the the country a lot of police you know are not easily tell him to come talk about it he can spend an hour with us yeah he can he can i'll talk to him later today we'll see what we can do um and then macy secured 4.5 billion in financing i did not see this what happened Well, did you see her? <laughs> this mistake. I no. I I, I want to start with. I bought a mattress from Macy's, and I bought the warranty, which I don't really buy on anything. Um, and I thought, and I, I've been actually thinking for three or four months. This was not smart. A ten-year warranty from a company. I'm not convinced will be here in ten years. Forget whether the warranty's smart. <laughs> I've added. <laughs> I've added extra risk to this money <laughs> with not thinking about the company. And I told my wife about it two or three times, and she said, that's your only complaint with the mattress? And I was like, yeah, that's my big complaint with the mattress. Uh, and it was like 150 bucks, and, you know, again, I don't normally buy them. But now I'm reading this headline, and I'm like, what happened? Who, who put the money in? And then tell me about the other one you were saying. Well, so we've um, seen some Hertz. very strange action in the financial markets, right? The um, Hertz... Uh, rental car agency, the company declared bankruptcy, and then the share price went from fifty-three cents to five dollars and fifty cents or so, tenfold increase post bankruptcy. Um, we saw the same with Chesapeake, the oil and gas producer, mostly natural gas, um, bankruptcy, and then the share soared. It seems like there's a tremendous amount of day trading. Um, there's a, a a few articles that lead to this, of course, uh, Robinhood which has made a gamified app and is a favorite trading platform for many millennials. Um, you can buy fractional shares. So if you can't afford a share of Boeing, you've only got $50 in your account, you can buy fractional shares. Um, and again, the app is very much like a video game. So it's easy to use. Uh, that's been taken up by a lot of people who have been forced to stay at home without sports, without sports betting. Uh, David Partnoy, who is famous for starting a company called Barstool Sports, um, as uh, uh, controversial and sometimes misogynist as that site is, he's never bought a share of stock, or I think only bought one share of stock, according to himself, uh, before coronavirus hit. And since he's uh, been forced to stay at home, he's been leading an army of day traders because he's a very popular personality on the internet, an influencer. He's been influencing lots of young people in day trading. So there's been a 
tremendous. He's the, he's the new Jim Craner of the millennial yeah, the, Jim, the Jim Craner <laughs> of the new generation uh, on Robin Hood. Yes. Yeah. Um, another interesting one is JETS, J-E-T-S, which is an exchange-traded fund, which is a collection of uh, a fund that's a collection of airline stocks, Spirit to Delta to Southwest Airlines. And famously, of course, Warren Buffett sold all of his airline stocks at a deep loss yeah. um, this year, just announcing you know, he doesn't know and doesn't believe that airline passenger miles will reach the peak that they enjoyed in 2019 for many, many years to come. But here we have millennials, uh, many um, trading with this new application and technology, and this interface, which seems very enjoyable to them, have been bidding up this uh, exchange-traded fund uh, <laughs> to the stratosphere. It is uh, Robin Hood, I guess. They're taking money from the old uh, <laughs> boomer generation and the billionaires like Warren Buffett and transferring it to the millennials who are young and are using their government's uh, checks to buy. I mean, the jury's still out on that, right? They, they likely haven't started to cash out on it. No, so. no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> but yeah, this has been a very remarkable time when we see, as I mentioned last week, you know, we've never seen such a big disconnect. Um, where there's just the greatest amount of uncertainty in the real economy, that's at an all-time high. Uncertainty at an all-time high, and stock markets at an all-time high. Again, those two never coexist, but never say never because they do now. So, um, but this week, you know, toward the end of the week, Neil, you probably have noticed the markets have started to roll over. Um, it's a little bit. A little bit, yeah. A uh, pretty big uh, uh, amount of volatility has recurred. I think, you know, it seems like the stimulus that's been proffered by the Fed is like a column of water. And it's you need that pressure <laughs> from the column of water to keep elevating and lifting stock prices. And once it recedes and the amount of stimulus declines, there's really nothing to keep stock prices aloft. Um you know, the real economy uh, can't do it. We don't know what, you know, GDP will do, except that the latest estimate from GDP now at the Atlanta Fed uh, expects a 45% decrease in GDP for quarter two. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to... Hang on, I'm gonna look at yeah, minus forty eight point five percent is the latest estimate for real time GDP decline. But uh, yeah, uh, the Nasdaq's up five percent for the year to date. It uh, recouped all of its losses from March when the coronavirus outbreak first became very scary. Um, it's retraced all of those losses and then added five percent since. So, pretty remarkable run for technology stocks. Um, Microsoft has benefited, right? Even though, again, yeah. we've started to see a little bit uh, of erosion in those prices starting, you know, Wednesday after hours and Thursday. Um, and today there were some struggles in the marketplace. So, I, I, so I, I'm curious about the Microsoft comment um, mm -hmm. and then any other comments you have that you want to leave uh, for the 120 families that you represent. Um, at what price would Microsoft have to be for you to consider a value worth buying? Wow. Well, I can't say that I've looked deeply at Microsoft in quite okay. a while. Um, okay. It's traded very high. Well, I have a, 
a question just about all SaaS, you know, software as a service, that model, um, it's still relatively new. And it does create um, a tremendously strong business during the good times. But I do, and I think many do, have an open question, you know, how durable that is through recessions, et cetera. Um, you know, famously, RCA, the Radio Company of America, was a darling stock in the 1920s. And they had invented a way to sell their radios on installments. But when the depression hit, when the market sold off, people decided not to pay their $2 a month to rent the radio. Of course. You know, yeah. It was just, uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't know how long people will continue to pay licensing fees, I guess. Well, look, I'll, I'm going to ask you the same question in December. Mm -hmm. How's that okay. related to Microsoft? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, um, I mean, you don't have to do a lot more research. I'm just kind of curious whether it's okay if your answer is the exact same, by the way. I'm just curious about whether, you know, SaaS makes more sense to you after seeing more data. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways it could go. I mean, companies might just, uh, we have better data now, we have uh, better market understanding. Um, they don't have to go and reclaim a bunch of radios, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which doesn't leave them out necessarily in terms of uh, capital losses like it would for a radio company of America, RCA, um, in the event that subscriptions declined. But I do think, and again, they could be flexible and just lower subscription prices um, and licensing prices and see how that um, works to retain um, the SaaS model or promote it. So I'm watching, watching. Um, I, I, is there any other things you want to say to the 120 families? Got a few minutes left. Yeah, I think this is a time for us to be prepared. There will be tremendous opportunity that arises uh, out of this dislocation economically. I think um, that we should believe our eyes. Um, <laughs> if anything, um, given what's happened with George Floyd, um, what's happened before George Floyd, I think uh, it brings up a fascinating question, which applies to the financial markets as well. And that question I always ask myself is, in what ways do we endeavor to protect ourselves from the truth? Because let's not kid ourselves, right. right? This problem, which exploded with George Floyd's death, had been obvious and well-documented long before this. Lots of times, starting with Rodney yeah. King and even before that, you know. Um, so we've had at least 30 years of documentary evidence that this is a problem in policing. And yet all of a sudden it explodes. Um, I'd say the same thing, you know, what, what ways are we insulating ourselves from the truth with regard to the financial markets? When financial markets, or at least the index averages, are at all-time highs, what stories do we tell ourselves to convince us that this is okay? Because the economy is really at all-time lows. <laughs> Unemployment, um, the GDP is dislocated. And certainly there will be a snapback or an inflection point where things are less bad. Markets react to that, as Roger Kumar told us last week very clearly. Those inflection points matter for stock prices and for the trajectory of markets. But let's be real, and let's not kid ourselves. Should the market be at an all-time high, when unemployment's at an all-time high, when GDP is expected to decline by 50% almost in Q2, and we have no visibility, really, on how it will rebuild itself? 
those are the questions I ask myself. And I think it's much better to keep our eyes wide open, to stay woke. Even Mitt Romney is woke. Neil Modi, we can all be woke. <laughs> Having a woke Mitt Romney marching with Black Lives Matter, though, I have to say, just tells you how unknown the future is to all of us. That was not on my 2020 dystopian card. I, I, wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have said... <laughs> Look, I don't know much about Mitt Romney. I didn't follow him closely, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have it wouldn't have seemed so far out there for me with him. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm it, it, using that to drive home a point, but I do think yeah, it was uh, still surprising to many, and me included, yeah, to see sure. him, you know, marching. But I think uh, you know, uh, Mitt Romney is is going to be on the right side of history with this, and he's playing the long game. Um, but that aside, I don't think he's playing. I just want to throw this out there again. I don't feel like he's playing a game. I think you're getting what he really thinks. Oh, no, I agree with that. But I mean, politically, I think he is um, able to think long term. I don't think he's up for reelection for a few years. He was one of the few Republicans to break ranks and stand out uh, against Trump. And more repeatedly, at least not to denounce him, but to um, offer at least some resistance to and thoughtful leadership uh, um, around what the president is saying um, and an alternative point of view and to be a rallying point for uh, Republicans who are disenchanted with this administration. So in some ways, when I say the long game, I mean, he's in the political game and I think he's, you know, playing it um, with that trajectory where a lot of uh, elected officials are just playing to the next election and just uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. are very much pandering for votes. And I don't see him necessarily yes. thinking that way. Yeah. Which is a kind of a luxury for politicians these days, though it shouldn't be. It, it, it's, it's, it's good to see him doing what he's doing. How's that? Yeah. I'll leave it there. Yeah, it is. And it's great to see all of the allies um, um, for people of color come out in uh, favor of justice. And against this, um, against racial injustice around the world, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, you're seeing statues torn down um, from the slave traders, from the old Confederate uh, uh, soldiers, statues to uh, many monuments are being challenged. And I think it's right. You know, most of those monuments, people say, oh, you're taking down history. The history itself was revisionist. Because most of those Confederate monuments certainly were put up in the 1920s when Jim Crow laws were firmly established, almost as a finger in the eye of the minority communities that were um, now officially and legally second-class citizens. It was almost a, a point of domination. Look, we finally won. Reconstruction was a brief interlude, and now the law of the land is segregation, and these were the people who help to promote that right anyway so if we tear down revisionist history we're not really iconoclasts we're just uh, erasing what was already false <laughs> a false history right mm-hmm. i hadn't thought about it quite that way writing of course. writing the wrongs of the past well which is most of history mm. <laughs> well you know it's a it's interesting i mean we it, this isn't a podcast necessarily about history, but it is great to see that the you know the modern trend in in uh, historical analysis is to bring in the voices of the previously voiceless, the masses. You know, to look at 
history through the lens of the greater populace rather than the famous people who um, who dominate the page um, and from the point of view of the victors, right? To really see it from the lens of the people. So um, a lot of archaeological research and a lot of historical narrative now is adopting that point of view, which I think is fascinating and fantastic. It will certainly give us a more well-rounded view of the past. Chris, I think we should uh, let our audience uh, know that we are wishing them well and sending them um, prayers and, and, and fond vibes. Yeah, and I'd like to thank all our listeners for taking the time yeah. and spending this uh, time with us. I hope you got something out of it. We certainly did. I'd like to thank Chad White, too, for his great work. Um, and I'd like to thank Tanner uh, Fuchs for his work with our, with our podcast. And Heather Robinson, who's on the line, I'd like to say thanks to all of you for the work you do to make this podcast a success. Thank you. Everybody, please stay safe and thank you for joining us on uh, another episode of Market Meditations. All opinions expressed by Neil Modi, Chris Idell, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Zoic Capital or Idell Beal and Associates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.